Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And, you know, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Uh, Today's fun fact, Google recently introduced what they're calling the POM, P-A-L-M-L-M-M, or large uh, language model. POM is the Pathways large learning model, and it was trained on a record 540 billion parameters. It was tested on 29 common NLP tasks, and on an astonishing 28 of them, it outperformed popular LLMs, including GPT-3 and Gopher. The pace of innovation in NLP research is just staggering. Uh, We'll unpack what all that means in upcoming episodes. But for now, shifting to this week's conversation, B2B sales is one of the most human-dependent pursuits. Most would agree the last role to be automated by AI is the B2B sales rep, B2B being business to business. That may be true, but it's also possible that AI can assist with common sales tasks like research, forecasting, training, and even following up on opportunities. Wouldn't it be nice if your sales team always knew exactly who to call at exactly the right time and exactly what to say to close more deals faster? We've seen massive investment in AI-first sales coaching platforms like Chorus and Gong that record, transcribe, and analyze customer conversations to provide sales coaching for reps. Well, today's guest is a pioneer in the space with unique perspectives on the future of AI for B2B sales. Steven Messer is a serial entrepreneur who co-founded Web Marketing Sensation, a link share, in 1996 before it was acquired by Rakuten in 2005. He has since advised, invested in, and started many other companies, including World Evolved and Spire, before eventually founding Collective Eye, short for Collective Intelligence, in 2008, where he and the team are helping disrupt the traditional role of CRM systems. Stephen has received numerous awards and honors, including being named one of the top 100 execs in Silicon Alley by the Silicon Alley Reporter in 2008. And uh, without further ado... Stephen, it's uh, really my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you uh, share a bit more about your background and uh, how you got into this space. Dan, so thank you for having me here. Your podcast, I listen to religiously. Uh, Everyone who is a first-time listener should know that if you are not listening to religiously, you are out of the loop of what's going on. So thank you for having me here. And it really is an honor to get the chance to spend some time with you and your audience. You know, look, a little bit of my background uh, I started off actually as a lawyer, if you can believe it, uh, and then quickly got out of that, uh, got recruited to a think tank at Columbia Business School uh, and realized that while I loved teaching, I, I preferred building businesses and ended up building Linkshare with my sister and two co-founders. Uh, Linkshare today is basically how most people make their money on the internet. It is every for every influencer you watch, uh, for every ad you click on, uh, there's a piece of a commission that's going back to uh, a website, thanks to their, their, their partners, um, and it makes the web work. And I think that's an important thing to start off with because sales is an area that really doesn't get a lot of innovation. 
And what we saw at Linkshare was it didn't take a lot of innovation to create an entire economy that could transform the way the world operated. And that's really what led us to Collectivei, uh, where we are focused on helping sales organizations modernize and become agile, something they've never done before. You are a serial entrepreneur talking to a bunch of first-time entrepreneurs. What's your advice for entrepreneurs who are just getting started on their journey? Well, I'll say something. This is a personal pet peeve. So Dan, don't hate me for saying this. I always hate when people say serial entrepreneur. And I'll tell you why. I, I always feel like no one ever says someone's a serial CEO, right? No one ever says you're a C serial VP of sales. And serial is usually only used with, well, you know it, serial killers. And so I like to say that what entrepreneurs do really well, what Dan, you do better than almost anyone else is you realize that there's a problem in the, in the marketplace that needs someone to come in and help them. And then they enable other people to be successful. What I love so much about this podcast is you provide a bunch of true innovators with the information they need so quickly that they can go and build whatever dream they have. And the world moves forward because of dreamers who actually do something. And I think that's really what's so great about it. And I've, I've been fortunate to spend my life doing that. You know, Linkshare was a great opportunity to enable a bunch of entrepreneurs who would never have had a chance before to partner and build new ideas. Today, if you look at some of the ideas, everything from uh, Honey, which is a downloadable app uh, that lets you save money on shopping, to Buy Now, Pay Later, to every coupon site and every other website and every other influencer, they were able to create a world that didn't require them to, to ask someone's approval or someone's permission to build their dream. And I think that's what we're trying to do here at Collective Eye as well, which, which is every salesperson I know is an entrepreneur in their heart. They have to figure out the impossible. And unfortunately, oftentimes they're left on their own or at worst case, they're given technologies that suck up all their free time without giving them any upside or benefit. And I think that's really what's, what this AI first revolution is about, is trying to find ways to free up people's creativity and let them do something they never dreamed they could have done before. Asked that question so many times, and the best forward answer I've ever heard is figuring out the impossible. That is the definition of entrepreneurship. Just brilliantly succinct. I love it. It's so, so true. Uh, so I sit here in Silicon Valley, and uh, I'm the first to say we do a lot of navel gazing here. We think, uh, you know, we're the capital of talent and the capital of tech. Uh, you're out there. Uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go ahead and give you the label. You are the mayor of Silicon Alley. Educate our audience. What's unique about Silicon Alley, and uh, what do most people who navel gaze in Silicon Valley not understand about the opportunities that exist in your region? It's a great question. I, look, I will say this. I think each coast has its own capabilities. In many ways, Silicon Valley has a huge advantage, it, because it, it's not New York City. And in many ways, New York City has an advantage because we are. So I'll, I'll give my thoughts and you can tell me, hey, Steve, I think you're crazy. So I think in many ways, New York has been designed through all the different industries that are here to keep you working 24-7 by removing every task that you ever needed. And Silicon Valley in many ways didn't have a lot of those features because of the density problem. New York is so all, so tall and so easy. So for example, the idea of an Uber as an app was an insanity to a New Yorker, but a necessity to someone in San Francisco. I still remember having to call taxis, and there were two taxi companies, hope that they showed up, keep calling to find out if they were going to show up, and maybe at best I'd be lucky if I finally got the car because someone didn't take it. 
And that was a, a real problem that, that New Yorker wouldn't have seen. I just go outside and raise my hand, even though it was a dirty car, even though it was falling apart and half the time I thought it was going to die, I still was willing to do it because of the convenience of it. And the idea of downloading an app, putting it on my phone, then typing in the destination was just so much more work than it would have taken. So a New Yorker would have missed out on that kind of an opportunity that globally was an important thing in a place like San Francisco, where they saw the problem, they were able to fix it, and it's become a huge industry. The flip side, though, about New York, which is unlike anywhere else in the world, New York represents, in many ways, the concept of America. Everything from immigrants to every industry you can imagine, all in one place, and they're forced to mix together. In your building alone, you could find people who are creatives, who go uh, uh, create uh, technology, who build businesses, who run old line companies. And by being forced to be in this melting pot forced together, you start to realize ways that you can learn from each other and do things in ways that never happened before. And so I think the two coasts are going to become great for disruption because we're solving different kinds of problems in different ways. And we're learning from each other at such rapid paces that in many ways, it's sister cities. They get along and they do really well. We all see the world as being very advanced and how fast we can get it to move. But I do think that they do have their differences. And in many ways, I would recommend it's important to go back and spend two weeks back and forth in each because you learn so much by cross-pollination. Hey, watch out, Mayor Adams. I'm signing up. I'm signing up to be your campaign manager. You, you let me know when you're ready. I love it. Well, I'll, I'll happily get paid in crypto too if that helps. Tell us a little bit about the vision behind Collectivi, and maybe just take a typical customer and let us know how they use the platform. Yeah. So let's start off with the challenge behind sales, because for many people on this call, they may not be doing what sales professionals do every day. And so the concept of what they're doing might strike them as something as simple as they're really funny and they're going calling people and getting the laugh and buy their products. And, and in reality is there's nothing further from the case. Uh, there is nothing harder in the world to do than to get someone to separate money from their wallet. And so you have to be able to answer a real problem and you have to be able to be there to answer and support them in every way it takes to solve their business problem. And so let's take a little walk through the day of the life of someone who's in a sort of a traditional sales organization. So let's imagine that you start your day as a sales professional. You're given a list of companies to call on. Well, it's your job to figure out who to speak to over there. And maybe you've been trained on some basic persona, but you've got to go ahead and do that. So you start calling and looking up and trying to get phone numbers from different sources. You pick up the phone and you dial it. And guess what you have to do? You have to use this product that was created in the 1980s that was based off of Six Sigma and the idea of process improvement. And my job is to go in there and open up an opportunity at a particular account, you might think, oh, that account must exist in CRM, but no, it probably doesn't, which means I'm required to go open an account, which means I have to know their name, their address, and all this other information that I have to manually input. And as you know, we as human beings love data entry. There is nothing more exciting than that, but I'm supposed to go ahead and do that. Then I create an, an account. Then after that, I'm supposed to create an opportunity. Well, what is an opportunity? Well, I might sell multiple things to the same company. So I've got to go create that. And then below that, I've got to find the names and phone numbers of people. And I've got to go create that first name, middle initial, last name, the address of the person, even though I might not have it. I have to know their phone numbers. And I have to do all these things manually. Then I've added that. And it's time for me to place a phone call. Uh-oh, I get a voicemail. Well, guess what I have to do? I now have to create an activity, manually add the date, the time, 
the person I called, the phone number I called, some notes about what I did and a next step of what I need to do. And by the time I'm done with that, I have now lost 25 minutes of my day and I'm supposed to do this all day long and as fast as I can. That's the traditional world. Now you might say, well, that sounds like hmm, not so much fun. And you'd be right, which is why a lot of salespeople just ignore a lot of that stuff. But it gets worse. Then I'm supposed to meet with my manager and tell him what I think my pipeline is and where I really believe the deals are going to close. Now they have no information. So they're just asking me stories of what's going on. But at, at the end of the week, it doesn't end. I then have to go back and sit there and look at what deals I think are going to close. And then I have to put them down. And then I have to meet with my manager to go and talk about them. My manager doesn't know anything much more than what I share, but I've got to do that. And then I, these are the, the life of it. Is this sounding crazy, Dan? This idea that I'm actually not selling. And this is the challenge in sales today, which is it's the only business function where 30% productivity is the norm. 70% of their time is wasted. How is it wasted? 15% to 20% is wasted on that logging of activity, even though I'm not capturing everything. Another 20% is wasted on forecast Fridays. Today, most organizations are debating or handicapping the horse race by having everyone's opinion of what they think is going to happen, even though no human being in any time in history has ever predicted any future event, ever. Literally, we're about to celebrate Passover today, and you could ask yourself a very funny story, which is Moses, the guy who was raised with Pharaoh, his brother, who spoke to God and carried the tablets down, couldn't predict how many plagues were necessary to free his people. And when he freed his people, was shocked to find that Pharaoh had changed his mind and chased him until the Red Sea opened up and parted. This is literally a story that we will be telling tonight if you celebrate Seder or if you celebrate Easter. It's part of the story of Seder. And you'll be talking about that as well. And once again, nobody predicted the future, but yet we will spend all day Friday debating these things. This is, my, this is traditional sales. So the idea behind Collectivi was to change all of that using an AI first approach. And I'm happy to talk more about it, but I just wanted to give you a quick overview of what we, what we solve and a little bit of the life of the person that we're working to solve and make their lives better. It's a shame Moses and Aaron aren't around because they'd be great prospects for Collectivi. They, they would be well. We hope that we hope that we make them happy in every way. But yeah, so, so this Rams is some of the second. <laughs> well, we could have at least predicted that what would have happened to his troops a little bit, a little, maybe a little bit better than he expected. Um, but yeah, th these are the problems we solve, how to capture data without having humans have to do it. So we free them up to spend more time with their customers. We do something called a daily forecast, which the AI does the complete work of making predictions. So think Google Maps estimated arrival, but to every opportunity that the seller is selling, everything from which deals are worth investing in and how to actually win the deal. Um, these are all things that we do and we do it in a kind of unique way, it, especially in the market, which is we leverage a community approach where we learn from every seller who uses our platform so we can learn about how every buying organization makes buying decisions to guide them to that personalized approach that we all know and from our own personal life is the only approach we like when we're buying things. So you talked about, I've never heard the number, but 70% uh, is unproductive time for most B2B sales reps. Certainly, anecdotally, I, I believe it. Um, so across that 70%, what are the key activities that Collectivi touches? And you mentioned forecasting has improved. Um, what are the other key attributes of the Collectivi platform use AI to reduce that 70%? 
So the first AI that we do is actually about capturing the data and putting in the CRM, but doing it in a complete, accurate, and verifiable way, because today no one really trusts data that comes out of these systems. And so we do that in a way where we put it back without the, 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 the seller or anyone involved in that sale having to do any of the work. And that's a, we, we leverage robotic process automation. And then we do a lot of other cool things like probabilistic unification so that we know Steve Messer and Steven Messer are actually the same. And uh, GE means actually General Electric. And these are all things that we do behind the scenes. We also leverage our network to make sure that when I know that you know some, we've captured someone's contact information, let's just say simply from their signature line, if anybody in our network sees that that person's had a title change, everybody gets the update. If anyone sees this person's out of the office, everyone gets the update. And so this is a great way to leverage the network effect of our, of our business model to make sure that everyone's data remains complete, accurate, always up to date. And so that's an example where we can take 20% out. We talked about forecasting. And I bring up forecasting because today, if you, if you ever saw a sales forecasting process from the outside, you would scratch your head and be like, okay, it's literally like watching stockbrokers trying to predict what the market's going to do next week. And we would laugh at that kind of person. In many ways, we laugh at economists, right? Warren Buffett has this great saying is, you don't, you don't see a rich economist. Um, and, uh, and there's a reason behind that. Um, and so these are all things where we, we, we help automate some of those things. But we do a whole lot more. We do something called relationship mapping. Well, in sales, building trust is a big part of being able to be a trusted advisor. And so leveraging the network of relationships that you as an individual have, but more importantly, the organization, the friends, the families, the prior colleagues that you've worked with to know who actually has the strongest relationship is something that we see can add a lot of value. Even as simple as leveraging relationships to know who my prospect is close with that I know can really make a difference, especially if it's a prior customer, because now I, I found my referral or my reference and it can make life a lot better for me. We do even more than that. We help people look at their pipeline so they know which deals really are worth investing in. And I would argue the biggest thing is when a good deal goes bad on the day it goes bad. Now, that doesn't always mean that I've done something wrong as a seller. It may mean my buyer quit. But if I can rapidly respond to it, then I can jump in and be the first person to try to get that deal back on the rails. And I think these are some examples of some of the things we do. I could keep going. There's a lot of different ways we're trying to bring Agile into sales. And that's all possible only because of it, different kinds of neural nets that we leverage. So we talk every week on this show about ways that AI is disrupting traditional business processes. And you talked about figuring out the impossible. Well, it's clear that you're on to something, but talk us through, you know, how does David slay Goliath? Because you're going up against a $200 billion company called Salesforce. And Although I believe the vision that uh, you know the, the, the collective eye is the post CRM world, uh, there are a lot of incumbents out there who would you know who would who would question how easy it will be for a disruptor to enter their space. Look, uh, you know, you're being kind as if it's just Salesforce. There's this little small company in Seattle called Microsoft who has a product called Dynamics. You've got a, a Boston-based company called HubSpot. And I, I think in many ways, what we're doing is meant to be different than CRM. And I think people are going to end up keeping their CRM because I don't think databases ever die. But what we're looking at with Collective Eye is this concept of agile selling. How do I move as quickly as my buyer is making decisions? How do I learn from everybody else who's ever sold to this buyer? And how can we help each other? 
I think in the same way that you know uh, G Suite disrupted the Microsoft Office uh, establishment, and G Suite was not started by Google. It was started. It was acquired by Google eventually. What happened is that human relations matter more, especially in sales. And so our concept of being a community model means that you can join Collectivei with or without your organization. You can find people that you know, and they can all connect to each other, support each other, help each other. But just like Google Maps and Waze, you can build a really powerful infrastructure by learning from everyone who's traveled on that road before you. And in sales, whoever sold before you provides that insight. Waze was a teeny little company that started in Israel before Israel was pushing out these billion-dollar unicorns. It was one of their first ones because they changed the model. Instead of trying to buy a mapping technology and then make it a little bit better with some kind of science, they came up with the idea that the phone could be a sensor that could provide up-to-date information and could literally learn new routes that people hadn't known about before. And I think that's the approach we're taking here at Collective Eye, which is how much can we learn from the collective intelligence of our community and can that make the lives better for our customers and our prospects and our organizations who've been struggling to basically learn from themselves and only themselves. And I think that's what makes us have the chance to really become the next generation of where sales leadership goes. I started off by saying B2B sales is an innately human pursuit, but let's play this out. Even, you know, 10 years, 10 plus years, is there ever a time when technologies like, or AI-based technologies like Collective Eye could replace the need for a human in the B2B sales process? It's a great question about AI in general, right? This is the this has been for the last 10 years for the, you know, for the late adopters who are out there who are trying to say, oh, it's never going to happen, it's never going to work. And the only thing I've ever learned in my life is when you say it can't happen is when it usually does. And you might say, oh, that means Steve, I think it's it's going to take over these jobs. But look what we've learned from from places that have completely automated or brought in robotics. Uh, such as Amazon's warehouses. Do you know that Amazon now hires more people per warehouse than it did before it had automation? The difference is they're doing new jobs. And I think when I look back and say to myself, you have 70% loss of productivity to do things like logging a phone call poorly, to guessing at what deals you're going to close with no other information other than your own simple experience to trying to figure out where to invest your time or who are the people you should speak to at each individual company. I think to myself, buyers aren't getting value today. They're not actually getting a sales professional. They're getting someone who knows how to, how to basically manage the internal politics of a company to try to solve someone's needs. And what I believe we're moving to is a world where process is getting replaced by AI. And what that frees the seller up to do is to become a trusted advisor who thinks more about how can we do things today together that you as an individual prospect may not be thinking about. Today, customers come to buy products. But I look back at this great little invention called the iPhone. Steve Jobs gets all the credit, but let's not kid ourselves. The Gorilla Glass guys were coming in and saying, hey, look, we have this new kind of glass that you can use to do something interesting. And they said, hmm, let me, what can I do with this? The Samsung guys came in and said, I've got these new chips that don't use as much power um, and battery, but can put the power of computing in your, in, into a really small processor and give people the ideas. 
Wi-Fi chips. And all of a sudden, all these things are coming together and they're all working together to create a product that would never have existed before if they were just buying for one problem. I think that's the world we're going to, but that requires the salesperson to have the time, the experience, the information they need, and access to people in a way to, a way to work with them collaboratively that they don't have today. So we think we're moving to a world where the jobs are going to get more sophisticated because we've offloaded the stuff that no person should have ever done before. And when those people were doing it, we're just doing it poorly. So I would fully expect that you're going to see people moving up the food chain and having much more fulfilling jobs in their life because of these AI-first technologies that are enabling them. So if I'm looking to get into a career in B2B sales and I accept that AI is going to be my co-pilot, what are the skills that I should be cultivating that could fill the 70% of my time that won't be wasted in the future? Look, what we know today is that problem-solving skills are really one of the hardest things that, that are out there to learn. And I think that there's a lot of reasons behind that, but that's going to be something. And that's one of the reasons why we host an event every Thursday called CI Forecast. It's every week you get 90 minutes with a world leader. And the idea is you can learn from other people asking questions and you can ask your own question directly to someone who's become an expert in a field. That's been everything from quantum computing to crypto to the war in Ukraine and how they, how they fight versus the Russians. And we learn so many different things from other people, but having that ability to have 90 minutes every week to have a growth mindset is a skill that you have to burn, you burn into your brain. You have to learn how to do that. I think there's a skill about helping people change. I think people think it's so easy. We look back and we say to ourselves, I would never live in a world 10 years ago. Imagine being stuck with the iPhone one or worse, a flip phone from Motorola. Could you live in that world? Probably not. It'd frustrate you. It'd get you upset. You think to yourself, internet speeds are too slow. I can't believe I can't do video conferencing well. I mean, there's so many things that you would look back and go, I can't believe I'd do it. But every time someone brings in something brand new, people Whoa, 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 I don't know if I feel comfortable about this. This is change. And so there's a, this change or this bias against change. There's a skill set in helping people accept and embrace change, not just to the person who's buying the product, but once they bought the product, how do you get it into the organization? Sure, we can wait for a pandemic to, to force everybody to recognize that change works well, right? We're on a Zoom meeting now. And two years ago, most of the world learned about Zoom because they had no choice. But the better skill set is not to wait for a 100-year pandemic to help make these transitions, but to learn the skill to make people want to embrace change and get excited for what they can do. And I think th those two skill sets are not minor skill sets. One is heavy psychiatry, uh, psychology to learn how um, uh, people are going to make changes. And the other is actually learn people skills to manage, to get everybody on the same page, to work together and to ideate new ideas. And this is something that can accelerate the world's progression in terms of our ability to actually make a better world. I think this is where the world is, is in great need. And you know this, if you've ever dealt with a great salesperson, you probably recommend them to every friend you've ever met as someone who's both trustworthy, but someone who helped you think through a problem and solve it. And when you've had a bad experience, you've probably walked away saying, I will never work with them again. So what I'm suggesting may sound like simple skills, but these are the difference between the world moving forward and people getting stuck in their old ways. My best sales mentor is a guy named John McMahon. 
who I met when a company I started a long time ago was acquired by BMC Software uh, just before John's company called Blade Logic was acquired. John fairly recently published a book called The Qualified Sales Leader and went on to fame. He's now on the board of Snowflake and has done great things. Who are your role models in sales or otherwise? What coaching do you have for our listeners about how they might be able to learn more from the kinds of coaches that you've had? Look, I, I've been very fortunate in my life to work with some of the most amazing people. Uh, in, in, you know, there's a moment in time I worked for the State Department where I got to work with Madeline Albright. I'm very sad she passed, but she was a great mentor. I've had the co-founder of Comcast on my board, a guy named Julian Brodsky. He was a great mentor. And here's what I'm going to tell everyone. A great sales professional is someone who can lead an organization to make ch- change and to understand how to explain it to everyone else when they're trying to figure it out. Whether you look to a politician who does a great job of explaining a complex issue simply, or you look to a family member who you look up to because they're able to explain what they're going through in a great way, we all can find mentors. You don't have to be in sales to learn these sales skills. That's why we bring together every week these great leaders, because each time they speak, you realize, I just learned something from them. I think this skill set that we're talking about is something that you started with as a child, but you didn't maybe necessarily hone. So I have had the fortune of having these great sales leaders around me, but I would highly recommend to you, don't just look for someone in sales, look for someone with the skills we just spoke about and then embrace them. They don't have to have a sales professional title or a sales leader title for you to find it. In fact, I would argue some of the best CEOs I know we're sales professionals at their heart, and we look to them. Satya Nadella is a great example of a sales professional who's not a sales professional by title. Got to get you off the hot seat, but uh, I want to ask you one, one, uh, one question I've asked a lot of guests. And uh, based on some of the answers you've shared, I'm really curious to hear your, uh, your reactions. One workplace behavior that will be common in a decade that today might just seem like science fiction. I mean, you want to know my hope? My hope is that we can beam ourselves so we don't have to be on planes as much because I think that's just my uh, personal dream. And whether that's the metaverse where we're able to physically beam ourselves or or imaginarily beam ourselves into a new location. Um, But I I think uh, the reality is we're all craving, especially after two years of being gone, a way to find better, more exciting ways of interacting with each other. If I were to guess, almost all of our events will not be going and visiting people at each other's offices. It will be finding these events. You can almost look to a Burning Man as an example, where people are having experiences together, they're building trust, they're talking about ideas, and they're doing it not once a year, but they're doing it perpetually as a way to continue to think about how do we take all this amazing innovation, which is speeding up at a pace that we've never seen before, and how do we make for a better world? If you think back 30 years, you probably had a disruption once every decade. Now we have 10 disruptions taking place every single year. So that ability to get together with people where you're sharing ideas, I think that's the future of where we're going, but we've got to find a way to break down these physical barriers. And I think uh, the world's getting there. Uh, I, I pay a lot of attention to these, uh, you know, to whether it's going to be uh, a rocket that takes us to Europe in under an hour or it's gonna be a supersonic jet. I was very fortunate to take the very last flight of the Concorde and I hope it's better than that. Um, So my hope is that these things happen in a decade and they almost feel too good to be true um, because I think that'll help us. But almost any mobility 
or any of metaverse kind of capability where we really can feel connected. I think that's what makes the world move fast. I hope that Elon Musk's bid for Twitter fails and he uses that cash to invest in Hyperloop. I think that would be, uh, that would, that might be the closest we get to a uh, flu powder from Harry Potter. I, I absolutely am with you on that. So let, let us, let us hope Elon, or I hope even one of your audience listeners who is out there with an idea that may be even better than the Hyperloop, I hope they go do it. Cause if, if I were to guess that it's going to come from somewhere, it's definitely going to come from one of your listeners. I love it, Stephen. Figure out the impossible. That's the message. Make it happen that's, every day. That's the takeaway. Stephen, before I can let you go, where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Look, uh, I think there's a few things to do. One, obviously, visit uh, collectiveeye.com to find out a little bit more how we apply AI. I think this community and network approach that we take is really going to represent a new version of how sales progresses from software as a service into a completely different and more powerful type of technology. Come visit us at our CI Forecast event. Just go to www.ci.collectiveeyeforecast.com and join. We really welcome everyone into our community and we hope you participate. And then of course, you can find me on Twitter, also on, on LinkedIn. Feel free, anyone to reach out to me. I try to keep my arms open. I learned from you and I hope today I, I shared something that helped you uh, be successful and do something terrific. We will link to all those resources in the show notes. And more important, uh, would you come back, do another one of these? Because there's so many, so many interesting topics we didn't even get to. Anytime, Dan, you want. I really can't thank you enough for all you've done to help me learn. If I can do anything more, you can count on me. It's just an honor to have been here and to watch how fast you, your community is growing. Um, this is the community that they need to pay attention to. And I'm just feel blessed that I could be a part of it. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words and uh, really enjoyed this one. This was fun. Stephen, hug some air. I hope you, uh, I hope you find your ferocity. To you, <laughs> to you as well. I wish you lots of luck and enjoy going to your family and not, not having to cook this year. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, that's a wrap for uh, today's episode of AI in the Future of Work. I'm your host, Dan Churchin, signing off this week, but uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. Mm-hmm.